All right, well, if you didn't miss, if you missed that greeting, I'm sorry, but just know that I am grateful to be with you this morning. And um, I was actually about to relay the fact that in about two weeks' time, I'll be standing in this exact same spot again, but rather than preaching, I'll be waiting for those doors to open so that I can gaze upon the beauty of my soon-to-be bride. So I'm obviously looking forward to that day. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, But I want you to imagine with me for a moment, Claire, you may want to close your ears for this part, but imagine if, for instance, I was standing here waiting to see my beloved bride, and as soon as those doors opened, I turned my face away. That would be pretty ridiculous, right? No, I mean, my, my beloved is going to be standing at those doors, and she's going to be so beautiful that I am constrained to gaze at her. There's nothing else that I would rather do on that day and in that moment but to look to see as she comes through those doors in her white gown. This is a little bit of something of what David longs for in our psalm this morning. He is convictional that God is beautiful and he wants to look and gaze upon God's beauty. There's nothing else that David desires in the entire world than to look upon and to draw near to God so that he can see his beauty. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 27 so we can read this wonderful psalm together. If you're using one of those red seatback Bibles, you can find this psalm on page 460. 460. This is a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, it is my adversaries and foes. My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above all enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. From this psalm, I want to put forward this main idea for us this morning. 
When enemies threaten you, seek God and gaze at his beauty. When enemies threaten you, seek God and gaze at his beauty. This main idea is also going to serve as the two points for our sermon this morning. So we'll start with point one, when enemies threaten you, and then we'll move on to point two, seek God and gaze at his beauty. Before we get into this, though, I want to begin by identifying the structure of this psalm for us, and it falls along four different stanzas. If you look down in your Bibles, you'll notice David's confidence in verses one to three. He declares, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He says that he is his stronghold. He's confident that his enemies will stumble and fall despite armies rising up against him. His heart will not fear. Then in verses four to six, you see David's comfort, which is God's presence. In verse four, David wants to dwell in God's house and to gaze upon his beauty. He wants to inquire in his temple. He wants to be hidden in his shelter, concealed in his tent. He wants to offer sacrifices to God. But then you may have noticed there was a little bit of an abrupt shift when we got to verse 7. David goes from these cries of confidence to all of a sudden, he's starting to fear. So in verses 7 to 12, we see David's cries. Look down in your Bibles again. He asked to be heard, verse 7, to not be hidden or turned away or cast off, verse 9. He wants to be led and taught, verse 11. He wants to not be given up in verse 12. There's just a couple expressions of confidence amid these petitions like verses 8 and 10. But overall, you can see that this section is marked by petition, lament almost. And then finally, David closes this psalm with the final stanza in verses 13 to 14 where you see David's conviction. In verse 13, despite all the threats of opposition, David's hope is that he will be able to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so he's able to say to himself and to others, wait and take courage, verse 14. As I mentioned, the movement in this psalm structure is a little bit awkward in the way that it goes from confidence down to despair again and then back to confidence. But I really think this is a lot like the Christian life, is it not? One moment we can be on a spiritual high, so to speak, We can sing God's praises and feel much confidence and comfort in him. And then the next day something happens and we're back down in the depths crying for God's help. That's some of what we see here in the structure of this psalm. So hopefully some of the structure gives you a good roadmap as we get into the rest of the sermon. And let's begin with that first point, when enemies threaten you. So one of the prominent uses of repetition uh, that you may have seen in this psalm as we were reading through it deals with David's enemies and the various synonyms that he uses for enemies. So look again down in your Bibles at verse 2. David begins by describing these evildoers, these adversaries and foes that seek to come against him in verse 2. Then he speaks of these armies that are uh, aligned against him. Verse 6, he speaks of enemies. Verse 11, he speaks of these enemies again. Verse 12, adversaries. Verse 12 again, false witnesses. So throughout this psalm, we see the consistent repetition of words or ideas that are going to contrast David's enemies with David's God. And it's clear that this is a song that David wrote when he was facing real danger. This is not something that David just came up with on his own, but this is a desperate psalm written when enemies were threatening his very life. We can't be certain what the specific enemies are of Psalm 27, 
But the reference to the tent and the sacrifices in verse 6 that you see there seem to indicate that this psalm was composed sometime after David conquered Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5-6 to because after he conquered it, he started to sacrifice in the tent. And so if this is the case, the enemies that David could have been facing could have been foreign armies like the Philistines or the Moabites or the Syrians, or it could be his rebellious son Absalom, this son that his, of his own flesh and blood who came up to rebel against him and sought to take his life. But in the end, these enemies are vague. And I want to argue that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was intentionally vague. He was intentionally vague so that anyone who reads this psalm could reappropriate it for their own use. That is, any person could take this psalm and apply it to themselves and use it when facing various enemies. So David has written this psalm not just for princes, but for paupers, as the old saying goes. As many of you know, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 poems that express really every range of emotion and plumb great depths of the character and the attributes of God. You know, it's been said that the other 65 books of the Bible speak to us and the Psalms speak for us. I think for many of us who have not had the right words and times in prayer can testify to this fact that the Psalms really do have a way of capturing the depths of our emotions and speaking for us when we don't even have the words to say. Well, in Psalm 27, we have a psalm that speaks to the real fear we face when confronted with various enemies. God knew that we would face enemy threats of various kinds, and so he has given us a song to sing when enemies and fears arise. Now, you may be sitting there and thinking, well, I haven't experienced enemies like the Philistine warriors, so what exactly are these enemies that may be coming into my own life and threatening my own well-being? Well, I want to put forward just a few illustrations of what some enemies might be in your life with hope that you can identify with some of these things. But if you can't identify, I hope that you're able to think about, related to some of these illustrations, ways that there are enemies around you that are seeking to threaten your well-being, be it physical or spiritual. So perhaps your enemy is disappointment. You always expected to have children, but you're experiencing the sting of infertility like alcohol on a fresh wound. That disappointment is hard. It's an enemy that threatens you. Maybe you always thought you'd be married, but the dull pain of singleness just grows stronger and stronger with each day. Maybe you're disappointed because life just feels like a drag. Each day is just the same. It's gray, and the next day repeats, and it's the same. Perhaps your mind is your enemy. The depression won't go away. The world feels gray. The food tastes bland, and the energies and excitements of the, of the past feel like a distant memory. And to make things worse, you don't even possess the energy to do anything about it. The dark cloud of the depression sits over you so heavy that you don't even have the energy to try to peek your head out. Maybe grief hangs over you and feels like it has knocked the breath out of your lungs. Like Psalm 38 says, it feels like God has shot his arrows at you. It feels like God's hand is heavy against you. Or maybe anxious thoughts make you feel like an inflating balloon that has grown too big and this pressure is just building and building and building 
until it's all consuming. It feels like you're about to burst. Maybe thoughts of self-hatred scream at you each day that you're not pretty enough, that you're not likable enough, or that you're not good enough. Perhaps health is your enemy. Chronic illness or even undiagnosed illness have stripped away every comfort, every security. You feel like you've been cast off or forsaken by God. Maybe your failing and aging body has stripped away your sense of self-control and self-worth. Perhaps rejection is your enemy. Your spouse has left you or, or your kids aren't walking with the Lord despite your best efforts to disciple them. Your boyfriend or girlfriend eventually rejected you or your close friends found friends that they like better, friends that they like spending time with. Your parents aren't proud of you. These types of rejections are like a shadow that follows you no matter where you go. It only leaves you when you hide in the darkness. Usually these types of enemies are so strong that they tempt us to look away from God and solely to our circumstance. These enemies reveal where we have placed our trust. We fear man because we love our image. We fear sickness because we love our comfort and control. We fear being poor because we love security. We fear obscurity because we love relevance and popularity. And we fear death because we love our lives. So how do we move from fear to faith? How can we confidently say, even if I lose every single dollar from my bank account, God is still my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Even if the dark clouds of depression or anxiety never lift in this life, God is my stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? Even if the dull pain of loneliness never lifts in this life, I believe that I will see God's beauty and that God will be my companion. Even if the doctor never diagnoses my illness or my chronic pain, I will sing and make melody to the Lord because God has lifted my head up. Even if I lose my loved ones or even if I am forsaken by my family, I will seek God's face because he has promised to take me in. When enemies threaten you, how can you find peace and hope in God? These are very real worries. These are very real fears. And it's not wrong to feel these fears. The question is, is what will you do with these fears when they come? What will you do when these enemies come and threaten everything that you hold dear to yourself? Well, David's going to give us one thing to do. One thing that he sought after in his own life. According to David, there is just one thing that you need. You need to behold your God. You need to seek him and to gaze at his beauty. So let's move on to that second point. Seek God and gaze at his beauty. When you really think about it, verse 4 is a little bit funny. David has been composing psalms left and right, and he's been asking God for all kinds of different things. But here in Psalm 27.4, he says that, I've asked God of just one thing. So obviously David is speaking hyperbolically, but he's speaking to the priority of what he's asking for. This is the primary thing that I am asking for. If you give me nothing else, God, this is the one thing that I want. 
David's chief desire amid the threat of enemies is to dwell in the house of the Lord so that he can gaze upon God's beauty. Were a genie in a bottle to appear to David and to grant him one wish, his wish would be to dwell with God, not to receive the benefits of God alone, but to simply be with God for the sake of being with God. Wherever God has chosen to reveal himself, whether it's the house or the tent, that is where David wants to be. Wherever God has chosen to reveal himself, David says, take me there. That's where I want to be. David is not an escapist. He doesn't run to the Netflix of the day. He doesn't run to, dis- to sleep. He doesn't run to distractions. He runs to God. He runs to God's presence. We saw David's use of repetition with enemies earlier in the psalm, but David also uses a good amount of repetition in this psalm to draw emphasis to God's presence as well. Look down again in your Bibles, starting in verse 1. He refers to God as his stronghold. He refers to the house of the Lord in verse 4. He refers to the temple in verse 4. He refers to the shelter in verse 5, to the tent in verse 5, and again in verse 6, and then to the land of the living in verse 13. David desperately wants God's presence as enemies close in on him. He also shows us this through the use of parallelism throughout the the psalm. This is a, a Hebrew poetic way of drawing emphasis to specific aspects of the text. So look down, for instance, at Uh, verse 8 of Psalm 27. This is an example of synonymous parallelism that David uses here. You can see he says, you have said, seek my face, and then the parallel, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. By my count, David uses this type of parallelism seven to eight times just in this one psalm. But then he also uses contrastive parallelism as well if you look down at verse 10. He says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but that the contrasting parallel, but the Lord will take me in. All of these things, all of these ways that David has composed the psalm through various repetition and uh, literary devices is to drive home the central point that no matter the amount of enemies that threaten my life, my desire is to be in the presence of the Lord. One thing will I seek after to be near God and to gaze at his beauty. There is no enemy in this world that can threaten to undo me because I have seen my God. Interestingly, the references to the house of the Lord, the tent, the temple, and the sacrifices also show that these verses are focusing on public worship. In other words, David sees that not just being in God's presence, but Worshiping God in his presence with unhindered access is the highest of all goods. The greatest delight that a saint can find is to be with God and to worship God. I hope that you can say this is true of our own worship gatherings. When we gather as a corporate church, those believers that are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit who are to make our lives a very living sacrifice before God, who come into this place where God dwells in our midst as we gather around his word to sing praises, to offer up pleasing sacrifices of worship to him. Is there any other place you would rather be than to gather with God's saints on the Lord's day, singing worship to him? 
God has promised that his presence is with us when we worship. May God help all of us to say with confidence that our greatest delight, our greatest good is to commune with God as we worship him. And hopefully this helps us to reorder our priorities. Hopefully it helps us to reorder the sports schedules and the rainy weather and our sleep schedules so that we can do whatever needs to be done to be here with the church. But David doesn't just want to be near God, as you saw in verse 4. David wants to see God's beauty. He feels constrained and compelled, just as I will two weeks from now, to look and to gaze because God is beautiful. I think what David is picking up on here is that the beauty of God is God himself. It is not God for what God can give to him or do for him, but simply God for himself. David wants to gaze at the beauty of God because God is unlike any other. My delight in the sight of my bride two weeks from now encompasses her beauty and her presence, her uniqueness, how she is unlike anyone else to me. We long to see God because he is even more beautiful than that. He is even more unique. We long to see God because his presence is compassionate. God is orderly. He is compassionate. God is patient and benevolent. God is just and perfect. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is unchanging. God is infinite. God is beautiful. He is unlike any other. There is not a single thing in this life that is as beautiful as God. You can travel to New Zealand and look upon the mountains and they won't even compare to the beauty of God. You can stick your feet in the sands of the beaches in Greece and they won't even compare. You can listen to the most beautiful poem penned by William Shakespeare and it won't even scratch the surface of God's beauty. God is beautiful and God is beautiful because he is unlike anything else in the created world. If all loves fail you, even your parents, like David says in verse 10, God's love will never fail you. For he has told us in Isaiah 49, 15 of Israel, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God is beautiful. God is the one who sustains us in sleep, Psalm 3. He hears and answers prayers, Psalm 6. He set the moon and the stars in place, Psalm 8. He is a stronghold for the weak and the oppressed, Psalm 9. He is a shepherd who protects his sheep, Psalm 23. He forgives sin, Psalm 32. He even tastes good, Psalm 34. He will not forsake his saints, Psalm 37. And that's just a sampling of a few aspects of God's character from the first book of the Psalms. Our God is beautiful. And our God is bigger and stronger than anything we can conceive of. If you're a kid in this room this morning, I want you to look up at me for a moment. One aspect of God's beauty is his power, that he is big and mighty. I want to remind you of a song that your parents may have taught you, a song that you may already know, but if you don't, I want to teach it to you. You might be afraid of what other kids at school might think of you. You might be afraid of many things, but because God is big, you need not be afraid. This song is also for the adults in the room. So whether you're 9, 19, or 90, I hope that you can also sing this song in times when you're afraid. It goes like this. 
My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Y'all know this song? (laughs) Sing it with me. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do for you. There's a little bit more that goes to this song, but I'll spare you so you don't have to listen to me sing up here. But I mean it. The simple truths of this song, kids, you can sing this song. Our God is indeed big. He is so strong and so mighty. There is nothing that our God cannot do. In times when you're afraid, you can sing and remember that God is big. And because God is bigger than any enemy, he will be your help. But I also want you to know that if you are a kid in this room and you haven't yet believed in Jesus, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, there is an enemy that is far greater than anyone you see at school. There's an enemy that's far greater than any monster that you could ever see. This enemy is your sin. But the wonderful thing about God's power and God's beauty is that he's so big that he can even defeat your sin. If you want to know how God can do this, talk to your parents after the service. Another practical way that we can seek God and to gaze at his beauty is not just by reading his word, but by meditating on that word. The Puritan Thomas Brooks described the art of meditation as not hasty reading, but serious meditation on holy and heavenly truths, which make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the mere touching of the flower by the bee which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time on the flower, which draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove to be the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Do you meditate on God's word like this? Are you too busy? Are you too distracted? Are you too productivity oriented to not simply just read a few verses and to sit with them like a bee on a flower seeking to draw out the sweet nectar of God's beauty? Brothers and sisters, draw near to God by meditating on his word so you can taste and see that he is good. The only way that David can say, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living amid threat of real enemies is because he believed in God's power and protection. And David didn't just wake up one day and decide, oh, I believe that God is powerful in this way. No, David meditated on the law of God day and night, such that in the secure depths of his heart, he knew that God would provide. This is precisely how the Psalter begins. The psalmist admonishes us to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, to meditate on it day and night. Apparently, the Psalms assume that the only way to delight in God, the only way to really be able to comprehend something of the depths of his beauty is to sit with his word and to meditate on it. But there's still one aspect of God's beauty that we have not yet considered. It is the beauty of God as demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden back in Genesis 3, their fellowship with God was broken. And this is where tension enters into the storyline of the Bible. God is beautiful and we are meant to be with him and to gaze upon his beauty. But our sin prevents this. 
God is holy and just and man is sinful, so we are unable to look upon God in his fullness without being burned up. This is exactly what we see with Moses in Exodus 33. Moses wanted to see God's glory. He pleaded to see God's glory and God said that he would pass by, but Moses would only see God's backside because no one can look upon the face of God and live. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne and what is his response? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So how could David say that the one thing he wants is to be with God and to see God if he knew that sinners are going to be burned up in the presence of God because of their sin? Well, I think David knew he would only be able to see God in some form of veiled glory. But given his forward-looking confidence, as we see at the end of the psalm in verses 13 to 14, I think David sees and knows something about the promise of God to be with his people and of God's future provision that will allow his people to behold his glory. David took God at his word and believed the promises of God back to Abraham in Genesis 12 that God would create a people for himself. And so if one cast themselves in dependence and faith upon this God and his promises, though we may not know how, we will be able to look upon God one day. David is seeing with veiled eyes the provision of Jesus. David was able to look ahead by faith and grasp what the apostle Paul saw with his own eyes and wrote of in 2 Corinthians 3 saying, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He was able to look ahead and grasp by faith what the writer of Hebrews witnessed as he wrote, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus has been revealed to us. Jesus, the divine eternal son of God, stepped down into the timeline of history and became a man, God in the flesh, so that we could look upon him with our eyes, so that we could touch him with our hands and see our God. You know, there's this interesting um, example of this in John's gospel in John chapter 14. Uh, The disciple Philip actually has uh, somewhat of a good insight during Jesus's ministry. He says that he wants to see the Father. He says to Jesus, show us the Father and it is enough for me. So Philip has the right instinct. He wants to see God. And yet, do you remember Jesus' response to him? Oh, Philip, have you not been with me so long and still you do not know? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. God in the flesh is the perfect image of God, radiating God's image and God's glory to us. The Apostle John writes of this again later in his first letter when he says, We know that when he appears, that is Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, Christ, God the Son incarnate, will appear a second time and we will see him and we will see him finite creatures as he is. We will see the full glory of God. We will be able to look upon his face and not be burned up 
because we reside in Christ. This is the joy and the glory of the believer. To see God, to behold his glory, to gaze upon his beauty as demonstrated in his son, Jesus Christ. But if you hear my voice this morning and you are not in Christ, all of these beautiful aspects of God, all of the ways that God is for the believer, all of the ways that God is a stronghold for the believer, all of the ways that God extinguishes the enemies of the believers, he will not extinguish your enemies because you cling to your sin. You think that you're sufficient in and of yourselves to defend yourself. As we read in our scripture passage from 1 Corinthians earlier this morning, there's only two categories of people. Either you are in Adam and in your sin, or you are in Christ and you possess his righteousness. If you have not yet believed in Jesus by turning from your sin and trusting in him to save you, you are still in your sin. In an enemy that is far greater than anything that can befall you in this life. You can experience bankruptcy. You can lose your health. You can lose everything that's near and dear to you. But the greatest enemy that's knocking at your door is death. Do you want to face death apart from God on your side? Do you want that enemy to knock on your door and to be standing there by your own merit? That's the question that all of us have had to ask of ourselves. But as we've considered this morning, part of what makes God beautiful is that he is merciful and that he is a patient God. He wants you to come to him. The fact that you're able to be here this morning and to hear the words of this gospel are evidence that God loves you and that he's being patient with you. He wants to draw you to himself so that you would turn from your sins and trust in him. Jesus conquered death by taking death for you in your place. He willingly died on a cross after living a perfect life, taking God's wrath upon himself. And after three days, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and victorious over death, so that if you would turn from your sins and trust in him alone for your salvation, he would be on your side. You can say, he is my God and I can look upon him. Will you run and find refuge in him? If you want to talk more about what it means to believe this gospel, to find a friend of God and to make war with your sin, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'll be down here at the front. As we wrap things up, I want to draw our attention to the closing of this psalm. I love the hopeful note of the closing of this psalm. David's wish has not yet become a reality, but he has hope. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David's eyes have not yet seen the true king in his glory, but he has hope. David's enemies may prevail in this world, but he has hope. And there is one thing that he seeks. What about you? Can you honestly say that no matter what enemies befall you in this life, I have hope because I believe 
that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. No matter what happens to me in this life, God is on my side because I've united myself to him in faith in Jesus. And God is beautiful. He is patient. He is kind. He is loving to me. Even if you lose everything, will it be enough for you to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Even if your earthly days are filled with confusion and sorrow, is it enough for you to simply have God? Our eyes will see death and they will shed many tears in this life. But one day, brothers and sisters, our faith will be made sight and we will see God as he is. We will see him face to face and we will only know his beauty. Until that day, be strong and take courage. When enemies threaten us, we can draw near to God and to gaze at his beauty to help us endure to the very end. Pray with me.